Welcome to the Triple Top Line podcast. This is the first podcast where you can learn how your business can create a positive impact on people, the planet, and profit. Here we bring the most brilliant minds from the startup and sustainability worlds to share their opinions and ideas around the topic. I'm Alex, co-founder at Catalyst Adventures, and I'll be here as the host on the show. So very excited to have with me here in the studio today, uh, Kiel Clarice, who is going to be inspiring us with how we're going to make a dent in the universe. I think it's, it's not every day that we have this opportunity to talk about startups that genuinely have a, an opportunity to actually change the, the planet uh, and change the world we live in. So, uh, so Kiel, a very warm, uh, warm welcome to you. Thank you, Alex, for having me. It's good to hear you. Good, good to hear you and, uh, and to see you as well, even though the, uh, our guests and uh, our, our audience won't, uh, won't be able to see us. But uh, Kel, you've got an unusual background. You're a, you're a historian, someone who's fallen in love with Africa. You've worked in the, in the whole startup space and accelerators. Maybe you could just tell us a little bit, of, please, about your background and, uh, and who you are. Yes, absolutely. Um, I indeed graduated as a historian and with a focus on natural resources, but I chose to go for a career in business straight away. I, I launched a startup in advertising tech, which I exited from in 2014. Also decided not to go or not to stay in the advertising industry. I didn't really feel um, at home, let's say, in that place. And I moved to East Africa where I worked in the real estate industry. And I, I have a wife from West Africa, which I also know well. And um, I have indeed uh, been involved for four years as part of the core team behind KBC Bank's Accelerator. And uh, when it comes to Forest Base, about slightly more than two years ago, I've been jumping into the scene. Um, I, I think I was um, already pre-programmed for it because I think since the age of five or six, I was very much in love with nature. As a young child, of course, you don't know how to manifest that. So I just caught bugs in glass jars and my mom said, hey, that's not the way to go about it. And she gave me a camera and she said, take pictures of it instead. It's much better. And uh, I think in hindsight, that was a smart move as a parent because it gave me 15 years of uh, joy as a nature photographer and it nurtured the interest only more. Excellent. So we, we've, we've already we've already discovered a hidden talent. So uh, I think we need to we need to find some good photos, some good insect photos to share uh, with the audience as well. That's a, that's a nice one. It's a nice one. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 then th- there was a triggering event though to to uh, focus on nature from a more professional point of view, which is the um, an article in BBC that wrote about a South Korean sugar company that was. Um, logging and, 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 and really like uh, totally destroying pristine nature in Papua. And the article stated that they paid $8 per hectare. And I thought it was a, a typo. And I thought, huh, how is that even possible? And, and I read that article at the height of one of those crypto waves. And I thought, my God, why are we even going for crypto kitties and all those things? If our planet's on fire and nature is so cheap, it's, it's really weird. And, and I, I felt really divided. I, I felt like it's incredibly sad that that is our reality. And at the same time, I thought like there must be an opportunity here because it just cannot be possibly true that that is the right price. Um, and, and that was the triggering event, which made me read a lot about the whole industry. And I thought back of um, a very important event I had when I was in East Africa, which was a dinner with a local land lawyer. And I remember that that man very easy, very early on in the conversation realized that I have no clue what it means to own an asset in an emerging market country. 
And to like bring me up to speed, he came forward with the following fictional example. And he said, imagine there is a beautiful million dollar house here in the street and that you have the money for it and that you love it. How much would you be willing to pay for it if you have about 20% chance that after the acquisition, it'll be yours? And I found out a weird question and I said, well, who would do that? I mean, I wouldn't spend a million on it. I wouldn't even spend 200K because I don't gamble. Okay, he says, and what if I could guarantee you that it would be yours? And then I said, well, who knows? I might be interested, but what's your point? And he says, you see, I'm adding one thing to the table, which is 30, and you already considered paying five times more. And my point, he says, is that you're from Europe and you're used to intrinsic value and price being more or less on par. But in my world, he says, that's really the case. You can have a lot of intrinsic value in your asset and the price you'll get for it is peanuts because the legal financial format in which it is wrapped is just not stable. And I thought, wow, that's crazy. And, and he gave the, the example of the, of the forest in Uganda specifically. He said, look, this is for the country, a financially very valuable asset and it's being sold for peanuts. And, and, and the problem is not the intrinsic value, it's just the format. If you can solve the format, uh, you can change the world. And, and that, that's the main question that drives forest base. If nature was to be wrapped in a stable legal financial format, would it be worth so much that it can outcompete the deforestation economy? And the good news is yes. Um, so if you want, I can elaborate on how I got to that answer, but the, the, the good news is yes. And, and, and the effect of this could be enormous. So as a company, we are after just this, after the price point for nature. And I think this is what, what has really attracted me to, to, to what you're, you're trying to do with Forest Base is essentially tackling uh, climate change uh, and environmental pro problem as an economic problem. So I think this is a, a you know, really unusual way of, uh, of approaching this. Uh, so yeah, please, please tell us a little bit more. And, and then, you know, I'd love to get to the point where we can even after the longer explanation, sort of, you know, uh, summarize it down into something that, you know, I can, I can explain to my grandma kind of, uh, you know, concept. So. Absolutely. Um, first of all, the reason we look at this as a financial, um, Problem is because it very much is. I, I thought at the beginning of my research a while ago that it would turn out that deforestation is an incredibly complex thing. And it turns out it's not at all the case. It's almost entirely a land use crisis. It means for every single hectare on the planet, there are typically several competing business cases. There is one party who says this hectare should ideally be agro. It will bring in more money like that. Someone else thinks timber is the best thing. And nature is typically also the loser of that competition. The market is changing though. So the opportunity has come for nature to get into a new position, one that would be more true to its intrinsic value. And to elaborate on how that comes to surface, um, we need to look at how we look at infrastructure assets globally. So for us, in order to, leave, to live, to eat, to have an economy with jobs, we need infrastructure. So we, we all accept that we need roads and ports for our supply chain and transport. We need satellites and ocean internet cables to organize ourselves and to communicate. We need hydroelectric dams, nuclear plants, and all that for our energy. And we also need nature for a breathable atmosphere, uh, humidity cycles, clean water, erosion control, soil health, pollination, because if we don't have that, we cannot grow our crops. So that means that nature is in itself an infrastructure asset in its own right, as much as all the others, only that Surprisingly, we destroy it. Whereas you cannot imagine someone going with a chainsaw and cutting down a windmill. Uh, that will never happen. And the reason is that our other infrastructure assets have a future cash flow. That means that typically how the financial industry looks at this, 
is that the present day value can be calculated based upon the future cash flow minus the risk. And the fast growing carbon markets now and offset markets in general, personally, I'm more fond of biodiversity and water, uh, make that nature also have a future cash flow. It means that actually we do not have to look at it anymore as something that is just a cost or that requires donations. It becomes an asset class of its own. So, so this is this is beautiful, and I think there's a lot to to wrap our heads around here. So let's let's maybe pick this uh, down into into a different uh, into several different parts. So, so first of all, you've talked about the natural infrastructure asset, uh, and I've heard you talk before about you know uh, the the concept of the easy one to understand is the toll roads that we often pay for around Europe. So, so you know, I drive on the road, I pay a toll, that's my fee for using the road, and and that money obviously goes towards maintaining it looking after it, making sure I can use it in the future and the company's incentivized to, to manage it because they, they know that the cash is going to keep coming in the future and that will pay for the, the costs. And, and, and from what I understand, you're ultimately trying to, you're saying that you want to do this with nature. So look after the forest in the same way. The forest provides these services. The forest helps us to breathe clean air. We need to take care of the forest and, and actually charge, uh, charge us for using the forest in, in that sense. Yeah, uh, exactly. Because today, if forests get destroyed, people see it as an economical gain and it's the loss of bird and trees. And as much as I personally feel for that, the I, I don't think any of us is stronger than capitalistic incentives. So it's about how you look at what you've just destroyed. And what, we, what you also destroy is not just birds and trees. You destroy a, a, a green machine park that is delivering planetary core services at a 24-7 basis and a in, in a low maintenance setup, uh, how can that not be incredibly valuable? So the question is mostly about what, what keeps the price of, of forests cheap today? What can bring them to their correct price point that reflects their intrinsic value? And if uh, you read upon um, a lot of studies that have been made on, on the global economy being dependent on nature, you typically discover that 50 to 80% of our global economy depends directly on the state of our nature. It's only normal that all those companies that depend on it contribute to, to, to keeping it intact, just like you pay taxes for your roads and all your other infrastructure. Super. So, so, we, so we've talked about that. You've talked about the, then the, the, the competing uh, desires to get hold of this land from loggers to farmers to governments you know, those, those, those different pressures. And, and then, you've, then you've talked about carbon credits or biodiversity credits and, and actually how to sort of monetize and generate this cash flow from the forest. So maybe you could say a little bit more about how that works. Um, I think a lot of people will be familiar with carbon credits, but again, I think a good, you know, your own, in your own words would be, would be great to hear. Absolutely, because uh, one of the risks in, in the whole current market working is that it's all about carbon and only about carbon. So carbon is incredibly important as uh, one of the many ecosystem services. And depending on who you ask, you have between 24 and 38 ecosystem services. I don't think they will all reach the market by 2030, but I think easily up to 10 can reach the market. And, and the other usual suspects would be water, biodiversity, uh, pollination, the ones I, I briefly mentioned before. Um, it means that we will need a little bit more consensus for those to be worked with. The reason carbon is the first is just because it's the easiest one to measure. It's one chemical component and it's easy to, to quantify. Whereas for biodiversity, there has been endless debate on how you measure biodiversity. And I don't think that debate will, will, will stop soon. Uh, only um, a push towards disclosing biodiversity 
will require parties to start coming up with actual numbers, even if they are not perfect. Okay, and you know, a, a lot, the reaction I, I very often get around around carbon credits and, and carbon offsetting is it's it's just you know paying paying for sins. So how how do you respond to to that one? Well, um, first of all, everybody follows economic incentive. If carbon credits become expensive enough, everyone has the correct economic incentive to to first first reduce the internal footprint, and that is what this is all about. I recently had a conversation with a, a, a company that pollutes quite a bit and said that if carbon prices will reach $100, their EBITDA will reach zero. Um, that means that they are already under pressure to reduce their footprints. And at the same time, they are also under pressure to uh, collect carbon rights. So you see that this is going on and the dynamic between the cost of pollution versus the cost of keeping nature intact, which is what correct offsets reflects, is one that we are building towards in the market and that we will need to reach. And an important aspect, though, to, to add uh, there um, is that the offset market is not full circle. In, in the real estate industry, you can see houses and rent, so the asset and its product. And if house prices go up, the rent goes up and vice versa. That means that the asset and its product have a healthy market dynamic. When it comes to nature, it's not yet the case. We see carbon prices go up. And we see the forest price just staying flat because they are not linked. Forest is not on the market as much as carbon is. And uh, forest-based contributes in bringing forest to the market so that we can see the same healthy market dynamic. And what we will see in the end is there will be a healthy market dynamic between pollution and conservation. And all of them will have a cost, which should be the case. Okay, and and then uh, you you you've talked about the the carbon uh, carbon credit markets and and how some companies are looking at them. You know, how do you see this evolving in the future? I mean, we've got governmental pledges to get towards net zero. Um, we've got some mandatory uh, uh, carbon uh, carbon credits on the market. We've got some voluntary. You know, just what's your your take on how this will evolve? I will. I expect voluntary and mandatory to merge at some point. It's not just me who predicts that. It's, it's a documented forecast made by several parties. Um, I do not think that in 15 years from now, carbon will be the main word. Uh, either we will have a lot of ecosystem services being traded, or either they will be grouped under one umbrella, which will be the ecosystem credit. Uh, yeah, we, we just have to wait what the future brings. I, I think in, in, in an early market, you shouldn't say follow the money, but follow the value. And, and the market will develop around that eventually. So uh, the most important thing that governments at this point should see is that a lot of their forests that they are exposed to in their country are currently priced at $100, $200 per hectare, $300 if it's a lot, or $400, but not much more. Whereas according to future cash flow or discounted cash flow models, it can easily be valued at more than $10,000. And, and if a government realizes this, and, and we want to contribute to that, Forest Base wants to create this market-made and publicly visible price point, Forest being a listed uh, vehicle of itself, um, if, if countries can see how much this is really worth as a financial asset, they can change the value of their natural resources in the national accounting. That's financially empowering. And, and that's what I expect if you want to see sustainable change that's going to that's gonna stay there. The, 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 what you could have otherwise is that there will just be like a, a one generation rush for, for carbon credits, everybody running away with them and, and, and then that disappearing again. It, it's really unlocking dormant wealth for me that that makes a country win or not win in, in this industry.
So you've already started to touch the topic of inclusion there uh, in the yeah. sense of including also governments and getting them involved as stakeholders and, and financial owners of the, of the assets that really those those countries do own. Um, yeah, perhaps that's a, a good moment then to, to talk more about more, 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 more broad stakeholders, such as, you know, communities that are living in, in forests and, and similar. Um, but, but if I understand you correctly, you're also saying, hey, you know, if, if governments can unlock wealth and potential, almost sort of, is this a new oil that they, that they, haven't, they haven't tapped until now, that if, if, if these governments can do that, then this would be a success of forest space as well. Absolutely. If I could, I would uh, already, well, I'll project for you what I believe is a healthy setup in the future. Take any national park today, and I know quite a few, and one of our advisors has set up a few. Um, most of national parks suffered tremendously during COVID because tourism dropped and, and they entirely rely on, on tourist permits to, to pay for their own working. Uh, from a government point of view, and, and it's a normal behavior for an emerging market country. I, I don't want to point fingers. I think demonizing is never really productive. So um, it, it's normal that you want your country or, or your territory to bring an economical um, win or at least productivity and that you want to see employment. So from a government point of view, a national park is often just seen as a loss or, or suboptimal use. Um, if you would have it, you would have a habit of national parks being listed publicly for like just 10%. I mean, ideally the majority stays in sovereign hands, but if 10 to 20% of a national park would be publicly listed on big exchanges, then at least there would be a global consensus on, on the value of this park, because the price points you achieve in public markets can be used even by accountants or auditors to, to actually agree on, on a value point. Uh, it means you can establish a, a value for your national park that is several times what you think it is today. It means as a financial asset, you can get leverage on that. You're just more powerful in general. That means your national park from a government point of view becomes an asset to really look after and care for much more than it is today. And I would love to work with governments already today. I just feel like we will need to prove our point first, not just in theory, but also in practice before we can, we can do that. So, so then I think this makes, um, you know, maybe before we go deeper into the into the communities and other stakeholders, we should actually just go back and do a simple uh, review of, of what is forest base and, and how does it work? Yeah, what we do is we consider ourselves a precedent case builder, a provoker. So we uh, acquire large forests that are up for sale in the private market. Um, we look at uh, forests that are for sale. One of them is sold by a timber company that is not doing very well. So they are having to selling off, they, ha they are having to sell off one of their assets. Um, and that's what we were after in the short run. We, we acquire these assets, we protect them, set up basically a conservation company, but conservation comes with the, with the um, subliminal tone of donation scene. Uh, rather than that, I prefer calling it a natural infrastructure company. And for example, in, in the Amazon biome, we uh, have the goal of putting up to 1 million hectares of land titles together in a vehicle that is specifically owning this asset and listing it. Uh, specifically, the amount of shares in this vehicle is the same as the amount of hectares underlying. It means that if a person or a company or, or whatever owns 50 shares, they know they actually own exposure to 50 hectares. That also means that if we establish a price point of several thousands euro per share, that is relatable, it's per hectare, it's the same unit as people in the agro industry would use to, to price an asset for. That's what we do. So we set this up for the Amazon biome, we set this up for other biomes, 
and these become precedent cases until we will be able to go to the government and say, hey, this is the kind of value we are able to create for your country or to at least prove the value has always been there. And we can do this for your national parks. We can do this for much more. And then the, the, the revenue that or the, the income that, that you can generate on that land, that would be in the form of the carbon credits or the other biodiversity credits. And that would yeah. be income then that, that you get from owning that forest. I'm glad that you ask because the industry is young, which comes with a, 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 which comes with more opinions than consensus. Even the vocabulary gets used freely by everybody who just wants to use it for their um, own optimal uh, interpretation. The term natural capital is in that sense um, used in very many ways. For me, if you still uh, are active in sustainable logging, which I'm, I'm not going to judge, but when it comes to natural capital, definition wise, you cannot really say that nature is your capital asset. It's wood and you're nature tolerant, but it's still wood. If it's agroforestry, it's still agro bringing in the money and you're tolerant to nature. We want to be strict about natural capital. We want it to be nature itself that carries the value. So it's, it's only looking at the, the, the offset industry. And, and if I understand correctly, you're also only looking at pristine forests. So you're looking to protect ancient pristine forest that's, that's pretty much never been touched. Yeah. And this is where the, that provides the real richness for the planet in terms of, you know, absorbing carbon, providing this home for biodiversity, you know, pur purifying water and so on. Absolutely. It's, well, it's being touched all the time and it's disappearing fast and, and, and the threat is really around the corner, so to speak. The reason why this is such a conscious choice is that on a global scale, we have a limited amount of resources. And if you want to reforest, the degree of success with which you can do that depends on the presence of pristine forests in the near vicinity. Uh, to give you an example, if you would, in the heart of the Amazon, log a few square kilometers and you give it time, probably the surrounding pristine forest will be able to repair that over time. It's going to take a while. Huh? But if you have logged so much that there is also nothing neighboring anymore, then you have to start planting all that yourself. But that's over ambitious. And I think human hubris comes a bit around the corner because we use the word restoring forest. And, and, and that's too optimistic. It, it de-responsibilizes a little bit uh, what we are doing because you can plant trees as much as you want. You can bring back something that looks like nature and behaves to a certain extent like it. But if you look beyond carbon at really the water table, the aquifers, biodiversity, you need centuries to, to, to repair that. So if you have limited resources, pristine forest first and then reforestation. Okay. And then <clears throat> imagine I'm now we're, we're, we're talking to my, my, my grandma and she wants to, to know what's, what's going on. So what we're, what we're trying to explain then is it's a way of protecting the, the environment of the, of the pristine forest. And uh, in, typically, if people want to, to invest and make money, they might, let's say, create a company and then that company buys five buildings. Those five buildings uh, rent out office space and, and those companies pay rent. So that those, those, those five buildings are generating income from the, the rent that goes into the company and then that's how the company makes money. So this is a, a, a parallel universe where it's actually doing something good. Uh, it's having this sort of positive uh, environmental impact by protecting the forest, by owning the forest. Uh, it's having the positive impact on profit, uh, which, which, is, which is where the, 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 the yield comes in, the, the revenue generated from the, from the land, um, and then the people, the, the triple top line, right? So the third, third aspect of, of that is, is then the people. 
and and they're the ones who are still living in the forest and still uh, yeah having yeah making a living in there and surviving in there so i think this is a great example of a triple top line business with a parallel in the in the world of 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 buying and and renting out uh, real estate so so maybe you could say a few words then about how how do you work with the indigenous communities who are living in the forest and are taking care of it yeah, it's not only indigenous communities, it, it, it can be recent migration that brought people closer to a certain area as well. And um, the I learned a lot of lessons on that recently, uh, or in the last two years, because like I said, one of our advisors has set up several national parks. And my colleague, co-founder uh, Puja, she actually grew up in a tropical forest in a failed conservation project. And she's seen from the inside how... Um, preconceived conservation plans made in an office somewhere in the West um, are incredibly brittle and create so much resentment, where, whereas dialogue can, can solve most of that. And, and we have very much such an approach. So we cannot come up with a 200 page preconceived plan of how we will do it. The, the healthy way is saying, look, we have these preconceived assumptions. We will open the conversation and we will have to work with what comes back. And, and one of our uh, local parties that supports us and that's very experienced in the scene speaks of a diplomatic relationship um, to the extent that he even used the term the state within the state because you cannot really consider a local community as a monolith. It's, it's a, a group of individuals with different ambitions and the most important thing is that they are involved, that they have a voice and that they are also a beneficiary of whatever um, benefits we can create. On the shortest term, that is employment. In the um, in our projects, on the midterm, it's shared revenue from the revenue streams that we have. But if we apply for carbon credit certification and the other credits, we also can apply for them free of charge. And if that succeeds, they get um, instant revenue from their own forests. And in the long run, if we succeed in our mission, what they own today, what they think is worth only 100 or $200, can be revalued at 5,000 or, or, or 10,000. And that's where the long-term win is also for them. And, and um, you, you, have, you have them as, as sort of formal owners in, in some cases, is that right? Um, so um, what we find important is that we do not acquire land from local communities because we think it's, it's better if it stays in their hands. Uh, the land that we consider to be the most um, uh, fragile, is the very big land titles that are in the hands of private owners because typically they sell to the highest bidder and, and they are less interested in, in whatever will happen with that. Uh, so we take over the formal ownership of such a terrain. And um, if there are people who live on it, well, first of all, if it's too many people who live on it, then we consider it's more like a local case and then we don't involve. But if it's uh, a place that is uh, almost entirely uninhabited, then we can acquire and then the most important thing is how is the relationship with our neighbors and how can we nurture that and you've said something important there about buying from private companies rather than just from local communities and you've also not mentioned government there so you know one of the questions that often comes up i guess around forest spaces uh, you know what about the political risk of of company or, or a government coming in and, and nationalizing land taking that away from you you know you you started the whole whole discussion here around this certainty of of, of title yeah. and, and knowing that you really understand that so maybe you could just say a few words around you know, how can you be sure that uh, you know a, a wicked dictator is not going to come in and, and take take all the land away yeah so when it comes to expropriation, uh, we, we look at the annual indexes produced by the big insurance companies and we see how 
well or how badly some countries score on expropriation uh, risk. But when it comes to ownership in the more strict sense and in a more individual case like ourselves, we go back to the essence of what ownership means. And in the West, we are used to the uh, to the reality where where we can reduce ownership to a bunch of documents. Mostly, if you have the right bunch of documents, you can prove something is yours. But that's historically the anomaly. The historically ownership is different, and it means, in essence, that ownership is the degree with which you can protect yourself against future claims. And your documentation is half of that, and the other half is from a country's interest point of view. Can you make a certain area economically productive and can you create employment uh, and do you pay taxes? So in, in general, is what you, is your activity contributing to the people in the country or not? Is it extractive and are you running away with all the value? And uh, in that sense, it's very important for us that we don't just look at the documentation and all that, but we also look at, like I said before, revenue sharing, paying correctly our taxes, and connect also contacting the government and, and asking them like, look, you know, this is our model. Can we do it for you and with you? Because that's, that's the whole goal. So it's a, it's a lovely, lovely vision for the future. And, and of course, you know, hoping that that, that can happen sooner, sooner rather than later as well. And that that's adopted by, by the, by the government. And then I think another question that pops up uh, regarding the, the land is, you know, what might happen in the future? So if you're wildly successful and you sell forest base, um, you know, Who's to say that, you know, this land won't be logged by someone else or raised for, for soybean crops? How do you how do you deal with that? Yeah, well, typically any such such actions are, are driven by economical incentive. So as soon as we reach a publicly listed price point and we intend to list, uh, at least I hope, by 2026, um, it will mean that the win that somebody will get from timber or agro cases will over time become smaller than the wind from just copying our model or, or, or joining us. So rather than fighting anyone, because that, that's something I've observed and, and, and so have my colleagues, a lot of budget is annually spent on fighting and demonizing people who log and countries who allow it. Rather than that, the, the, the best deterrent against deforestation is just removing the oxygen that drives this behavior. If you win more from protecting it, you will not see very much very often anymore uh, the, the attempt of, of, of logging super so so what do you see as the as the main challenge i mean we've touched on quite a few different angles and, and things that could be challenging there um but what, what do you see really as this as this main challenge in the in the next couple of years of of getting getting towards public listing and and, and achieving this price point in in public markets well for starters i I'm hopeful that we will quickly get beyond or soon get beyond just carbon, uh, biodiversity and water or experimental, which is a good sign. I, I just hope it doesn't take them 10 years to uh, get to some degree of maturity. I also don't expect it. I expect it to take three to five years to have something that is more widely marketable. And that's important because, like I said earlier, a singular focus on just one thing like carbon can be detrimental. It should be a multi-angle focus. Um, Another challenge, and that's on the market level, is that today uh, in the avoided deforestation setup, we are valuing destruction and not intrinsic value. So to give you an example, in avoided deforestation contexts, if you have, for example, a presence in an area that has a 3% deforestation rate, you will get more carbon credits from it than in a 1% deforestation rate because you're fighting against 
more important uh, powers if the deforestation rate is higher in your region. That means that if a government comes in, makes a region safer for climate, they reduce the threat, hence you get less carbon credits. So the government is basically punishing themselves for, for, for protecting nature. That, that's, that's an absurd paradox and, and it's, it's criticized also very broadly. So my expectations is that in the coming few years, this will be addressed and that we will see a switch from valuing destruction to valuing the intrinsic underlying value. Um, aside of that, that doesn't prevent us from, from building this business because the current uh, calculations we've made look very good. And on a more specific business case, I can only hope that the New York Stock Exchange succeeds in approving their format, uh, which they are setting up. Um, it's called NUX, which basically just means natural asset companies. And um, it is uh, designed for companies, natural asset companies, to report on 38 ecosystem services. It's basically a new accounting format specifically for this. In the short run, that would be, would be an important milestone for the entire industry if they get that approved. And you said 38 there? From the conversations I had with people that were involved in that, I heard 38, yeah. Yeah, okay. I, I think maybe we can, we can try and explain as well and, and, and rethink how, uh, how do we explain something as beautiful as biodiversity um, and, and, and how to actually monetize that. Uh, so for me, I did a, a course at the Stockholm Resilience Center a couple of years ago. And, and one of the challenges there was, you know, how can we actually monetize uh, e ecosystem services and it was everything from you know i get the benefit of standing under a tree when it's raining and i don't get wet because the tree's protecting me beautiful but it, it's free I'm, I'm not i'm not actually paying for that uh or there's a cost that i'm, I'm avoiding if i if i cut it uh, if it's there, cut there are two ways to look at that you, you you can calculate it with as much academic knowledge as you possibly have in front of you but like in the housing market and the rent which are both on the market you can also just bring the asset to market, see what it achieves as trading value and deduct the value of the rent or of the product that comes with it. So um, the, 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 this price point will, will, will be built from both directions, ideally, and, and not only from academical knowledge, because if that's the case, there will never be consensus. Uh, it's, it's normal for scientists to add more complexity, not to reduce it. Super good, good, good explanation on, on, on that one. Thanks. And, and then uh, let's, let's just jump then back into the ambition of, of, of what's the real scope or scale of what forest base could achieve here, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, number of hectares uh, to be acquired and, and, and listed and protected. Yeah. Our ambition is to build a vehicle with 1 million hectares in, in, in South America. Well, Amazon uh, exposure. Uh, 1 million also in Central Africa and 1 million in Southeast Asia. And we, and, and perhaps more because at some point we would want to go beyond rainforests. We've seen that you can also acquire fishing rights. We've seen that such a thing was available at some point. There are other ecosystems that need as much attention as, as rainforests do. Only that we will start with this now. And why 1 million? It, it, we made a calculation of how much you would need to have sufficient liquidity if it gets listed and also to be sufficiently provocative to governments to make your point, because today there is no publicly or globally available anchor price point for tropical forest. That's the thing we want to build. Um, we are not interested in endlessly adding more land. At some point, we will have proven our point. It will be accepted. And then the preference is to work with governments on, on, on patches of nature that are even way bigger, but that are in their hands and for which we are the supportive, supporting role. 
Let, let's jump back to to the question of uh, not the nationalisation of the land, but or the the sort of the future security that that the, the land will really be protected. So this sense that um, you know what what ha what how how can how can we be really really sure that you know twenty years in the future that this this land will really stay protected? Maybe you can just run us yeah. through that one. First of all. No hollow promises. Certainty does not exist, uh, but you can get close to it. And I, I was uh, taught by, by, by our, our several advisors that originally in the 80s and 90s, there was a general belief that fortress conservation was the right way to do it. You know, fence it and have this kind of aggressive approach and, and seeing everyone around it as a threat. And that has also not yielded the results expected. And in, in the now successful cases that our advisor has set up in Africa, we've learned that inclusive conservation makes that the barrier of people living around you or with you. And, and it's normal for people to be opinionated. Nobody will have a neutral point of view. If someone else comes in, they will either be with you or against you. Uh, like I said, local communities are not monoliths. There are some individuals there who log. There are other individuals who love the nature. And, and, and that, that dialogue also happens internally very often. Uh, if the benefits that the neighboring communities get from, from our presence are bigger than what they can get from logging, and basically you take away the biggest threat that you were fighting against in the first place. And again, you can only achieve that with continuous dialogue, continuous monitoring, um, and, and, and accepting that they are also in charge to a certain degree and that you have to respect that. At least that's, I'm not speaking with my own voice, but with the one of my advisor who, who teaches us these lessons. Us succeeding in our mission will also easily have governments on board because if there is suddenly a price point that is 10, 20, times more or 50 times higher than, than what it is for nature today, uh, our publicly and market made price point is visible for everyone. It means it doesn't only uh, refer to our specific project, which is on a continental scale, almost invisible. It means that countries can use this price point now for everything they own in nature. So they have an interest in keeping this price point high. That's also an important one. I mean, it's a it's a very new space, uh, natural natural infrastructure assets or nature backed assets. It's um, it's probably not something that that all of us deal with uh, every day. You're obviously targeting a B two B market, so selling selling this as a service initially to businesses, um, and and then the question will come for people listening. Okay, so you know, how do I get involved? How can I be part of this? Uh, when when will the opportunity open up for me to either you know put my money to support or you know, to buy a hectare of forest. So what's your vision on that? Yeah, our ambition is to list, uh, as I said, in a few years down the line, as from that moment, it means that it becomes democratically available for everyone, basically. And, and that's what we are after in the long run. In the short run, it's indeed uh, for private markets only, because launching a company like this one is not a walk in the park. You cannot go from scratch to a global retail presence and being listed in day one. Um, if people want to be involved in natural infrastructure companies, I would say my ambition is three years down the line, they can join us. Anything they want to do today, uh, I would say they have to look at what they eat because uh, deforestation is by far and large a land use crisis. And my colleague Puja has calculated that a plate that contains uh, a meal with meat requires about 30 square meters. 30 square meters that you have occupied for months in a row for that one plate. And if it's only vegetables, it's one and a half square meters, which is crazy. So, 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 um, 
if you want to contribute to, to reducing the land use crisis, this is the quick win you can change today, even tonight or at lunchtime. And in a few years from now, you can join the natural infrastructure movement via, uh, with Forest Basin. Sounds like a, an exciting proposition for, for, for everyone, everyone listening in as well. So, uh, yeah, watch this space and, uh, see, see what happens as this, as this is coming to market in the, in the next couple of years. Super. Um, I, 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 th I think we're, we're, we, we've covered a lot of topics. Um, we, we've talked about, you know, everything from your initial, uh, motivation, you know, your, your sort of, you know, turning points in, in life when, when, when this has come and your, your experience and background that's, that's brought you to where you are today. Um, I think this 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 dinner. Uh, I guess it would have been cool to be a fly on the wall watching you have this dinner with the uh, with the with the lawyer or the the, the person in in in, in uh, talking about land rights and actual security. I think we probably take this for for granted way too much in uh, in the West or Western Europe. Let's let's say um, or the whole of Europe. That this this is something that's really kind of natural for us now that we know what we've bought. Uh, and then and then it's looking at a new business model, a radically different business model for forest space and, and, and bringing the, the real value of the forest, of the environment to market and putting by putting a price point on it uh, to, to making that a, a fantastic incentive to, to be, to protect the forest, but also for people to do more uh, and understand the value of it. So yeah, this is a, an exciting, exciting journey ahead. Um, what, what else, what else have I, have I forgotten to ask or, or, or not touched? What else would we, would we, should we cover here? Um, only one thing I can, I can add is that it's a common misconception that, um, uh, we're putting a price point on nature. Uh, we are not, nature has a price point that's way too low. And I don't think I can change the fact that land globally has been priced on already. Uh, so our conclusion is that the tragedy is not in nature having a price point. The tragedy is, uh, in this price point being way too low. That's what is the real problem. And I believe that is something that we can work with. Super. So almost putting a, a value point on it rather than a, than a, than we, a price. We believe price and value are disconnected now. We believe it's kept artificially low due to legal financial format, the land title being way too big, no liquidity being there, and the revenue stream that is potentially there, but not yet like widely accepted. So those elements keep it artificially low. And, and the momentum is there to change that now. And, and nothing like a bit of momentum to get things uh, things moving. So um, yeah, well, I think we we uh, we can sort of you know start to start to wrap up and uh, and wish you wish you all the best for 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 this uh, for this journey. Thanks so much, uh, much Alex. Uh, I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, Kill. And, and then as a final as a final question, uh, I, we'd we'd like to we we always ask guests you know if you if there's one book that's really inspired you, what what would that book be uh, that we can we can share that uh, so that other people can. I, I would say The Value of a Whale, written by Adrian Buller, a very good read. Um, it it, it attacks, uh, attacks a lot of our typical conceptions we make when it comes to putting value on nature. It, it explains very well the, the, the good approaches and, and the bad approaches towards it, and, and I can recommend it to everyone. The Value of a Whale. Yes. Fantastic. If that is not a, a, a provoking or a provocative title, then I don't know. Excellent. No, it sounds it sounds really good. One of one of my uh, um, favorite um, kids' books is is the story about a snail and the whale uh, by Julia Donaldson. The snail and the whale, and it's the yeah the whales giving the snail a ride around the world, and there are lots of adventures on the way. So uh, that sounds like a cool one uh, to, to to finish off. So so thanks for sharing your 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 book idea as well. 
Kel, uh, wishing you uh, very good luck uh, with this and, and, and all, you know, all of us supporting and behind you. And uh, yeah, thanks again for taking the time for talking to us. Thanks a lot, Alex. Have a nice day. Thank you. The future is triple top line. 